You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today. At LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Broken records. The albums you wouldn't shut up about. Broken records. The music our guests can't live without. Like Judy. Barbara. Liza. Bette. Betty. Audra. Bernadette. We broadcast this podcast with hopes that someday we might get... Welcome to Ben Rimmelauer's Broken Records on Broadway World. I'm Ben Rimmelauer, and I'm here recording remotely with my lovely, even lovely, lovelier in quarantine co-host, Daniel Nolan. Thank you. Hey, y'all. We are so excited to be quarantined streaming with you today, the 1999 episode of Bravo Profiles, Betty Buckley, in performance and in person. And we're even more excited to be doing it with the lady herself, Broadway royalty, living legend, Tony Award winner, Betty Buckley. Betty made her Broadway debut as Martha Jefferson in the original 1969 cast of 1776. Hi, hi, hi. What are you doing? I'm singing her song from 1776. He plays the violin. Here you are. Betty's other fabled Broadway appearances include Sunset Boulevard, Triumph of Love, Carrie, Song and Dance, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, Pippin, and her Tony-winning turn as the original Broadway Grizabella in Cats. In London, she starred in Dear World, I almost said friend of the pod, Dear World. (laughs) Well, it is. In London, she has starred in Dear World, Promises, Promises, and Sunset Boulevard. And her off-Broadway credits include The Old Friends, Elegies, The Eros Trilogy, and I'm Getting My Act Together and Taking It on the Road. And Betty is also a TV and movie star, memorable for her major parts in such films as Brian De Palma's Carrie, Bruce Beresford's Tender Mercies, Roman Polanski's Frantic, Woody Allen's Another Woman, M. Night Shyamalan's Split, and The Happening. Her recurring and regular roles on TV include Supergirl, Preacher, Oz, and Four Seasons as Abby Bradford on Eight is Enough, to name just a few. Now you're getting into my era. Betty is a master concert performer who sold out solo bills in the best theaters and other venues, both big and small, all around the world, including her near-mythic Carnegie Hall Triumph, recorded live in 1996, a very worthy contribution to her fabulously prolific discography of 18 solo albums and God knows how many cast albums and compilations, every single one, a Desert Island disc, a broken record for me personally. 
And Betty is our first guest to be featured in our theme song. <gasps> I was going to say we should sing it live, but we do that for her during the interview, don't we? Yes, yes. And they've, the listeners just heard it, so we don't want to you know, overstay <laughs> her welcome. welcome. <laughs> um, do you think Betty liked our singing? I do. I do. You know, like when, I am. Um, when she was talking about like singing along to like Judy Garland, Carnegie Hall. Yeah. I like, I neglected to mention to her how much I have sung along to her Carnegie Hall. Yes, totally. Totally. I'm sure many, many queens have as well. And like, it's so, um, Betty's voice is just so muscular and like, um, uh, uh, you know, it's just like really fun to belt along with her because she's just so like, and from the way. I mean, she just yeah. gives it to ya, you. Oh, know? And, but she also, I was, it's so funny, as we were getting ready to record, I was uh, running around uh, doing dishes and I had her in my underwear. In my underwear and I had her uh, YouTube video cover of Joni Mitchell's River blasting on my speakers throughout the house. And it's so crazy because she makes it her own, yet it still maintains that, like, like she does the. And it's like so beautiful. And she kind of, it's not like a, just a piano version like the original Joni was, but it, it has those jazz elements that she weaves mm. throughout it with her, um, uh, with the orchestra, uh, the uh, arrangement. And it's all those, those that, that what she was telling us about, about all those years she was playing the bottom line with yeah. Kenny Werner and their band. And she would do, and that's on her album, With One Look. And there's just so many of those albums are all those amazing jazzy arrangements yes. of show tunes and also singer-songwriter stuff like that and, you know, more obscure stuff, pop stuff, jazz standards. And the, and the jazz thing, the arrangements are so, like, you know, Joni Mitchell around, like, uh, you know, Court and Spark kind of onward mm. and until you get to some of her more experimental stuff. But it really has that flavor to it. And it just, like it just really reaches down and just like grabs my romantic little heart and squeezes. Well, you have to listen to um, actually on that same album of hers with one look, which was her third Mm -hmm. album from, I want to say 1994. Um, She sings um, river, but she also just, you made me think of when you said romantic things. She does this medley of two for the road and when October goes. Oh, I love those songs. Oh my God. And she does it so beautifully and like I just remember being like a freshman in college and listening to the album and like looking out the window at like the like leaves changing in the fall like first semester and just she'd be like the children running home beneath the twilight sky oh for the fun of them when I was one of them and it just like she was talking to me The snow begins to fly Above the smoky roofs I watch the planes go by The children running home Beneath a twilight sky Oh, for the fun of them When I was one of them And, okay, this is my confession. All that, that Joni, actually, uh, there's two on that album, when I, uh, uh, River and A Case of You. 
oh, case of you. Yeah. And both of those, I knew the Betty Buckley version before I knew the Joni Mitchell version. And I still really, the Betty one is the one that sounds like the real one to me. Betty was like the... Um, Gateway the, drug. Judy Collins to Joni instead of... In the, in the way that Judy was totally like yes. all like my mom and like all like the teenage girls who like listen to Judy Collins like pop LPs and that's how they found Joni. Yeah, like for me that was Betty Buckley. You're like, oh, that's um, Betty Buckley song. I um so but, many songs though. Like I mean, so weirdly like the whole like Hank Williams she does on that same album. I love that album. She has a really beautiful version of I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. Mm. I and like that was the first one I knew and like um uh. Yeah, it's amazing. You know what song of hers does that for me that I listen to all the time is um, that song, Get Here. You can reach me by railway. You can reach me by railway. You can reach me by trailway. You can reach me on an airplane. You can reach me with your you can reach me by caravan Cross the desert like an Arab man I don't care how you get here Just get here if you can But, um, yeah, it's so good. I listen to that all the time. And then I also listen to, in the summer, um, in Fire Eye, I listen a lot to... The one that they talk about in the documentary that she sent to... Oh, yes. Uh, Betty Buckley, 1967. That yeah. So she had, had made that, like... I don't know, did she do it in a mall? You know, it's very much... Yeah. It's the Betty Buckley equivalent of that record Barbara Streisand made, like, where she sang, like, Secondhand Rose with her like, mom. For the record. No. Yeah, and then later on it was released. But... So that Betty made that record. She had was still living in Fort Worth. She hadn't moved to New York yet. And she sent it to Roger Hess in that time when he was trying to like get her to move to New York. Yeah. And what's so amazing? So I saw that this Bravo Profiles documentary um, on TV when it aired in 1999, and I taped it and like watched it all the time on VHS. Mm-hmm. And I was haunted by the siren song of Betty singing. The two tracks that they play on the on the video, one is One Boy, which she does so well. I yes. mean, it's as good as um, Anne-Margaret or like, um, what's her name on the Broadway recording, uh, Susan Watson. But then she sings a song, which I did not know at the time, but they only played the English half in the, in the Bravo profiles, but she's like, love me with all your heart. That's yeah. all I want, love. And that was my siren song. Like, Betty's young voice belting that out in that like just high bell yeah. tone kind of just pure sweet but like really kind of like ballsy still way ballsy. it was so alluring to me and all I wanted was to find that and I would just like search everywhere and of course it didn't exist and then I met Roger Hess when he came to see Lonnie in a class act mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I was like oh my god please you are the one she made that tape for. He's like, oh yeah, I have it. I treasure it. And I was like, I need a copy. And he was like, well, maybe you'll get one. And I kept bugging Lonnie and being like, did you ask Roger? Did you ask Roger? And he was like, yeah, Roger says he can't do it. It was private from Betty to him. So that was like in 2001. And then in 2006, I think it was, 
Betty released mm. Betty Buckley in 1967, that entire album, which is all gold. Yeah. And still yeah. my favorite track is the one you're talking about where she sings. It's, I guess it was kind of a popular song in the 60s, uh, Cuando Caliente El Sol. Yes. And Betty sings it both in English and in Spanish. And in Sp- she sings it in Spanish slow, and then she speeds it up to do that mm-hmm. thing. And I just love it so much. Cuando Caliente El Sol That together with um, Elaine Stritch's album, Stritch, where she sings like, um, you know, uh, are you having any fun? Like those are my ultimate like cocktail party jams. Elaine Stritch, (laughs) are you having any fun? And Betty Buckley, Cuando Caliente El Sol. Like if those songs are playing, I could not be happier. That like that when we are like, I only pray that sometime this summer, the quarantine is behind us and we're like in our house on Fire Island with like an ocean breeze mm. and everybody else is drinking and I'm having my diet ginger ale and we're listening to those songs. I'll be, that's my wish. Yes. Well, we'll we're manifesting it right now. Yes. Um, we're, we're projecting it to uh, the Lord above, AKA Elaine Stritch smoking a cigarette in heaven. Yes. And Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> Um, anyway, yeah, so that is, um, and Betty's just on, sprinkled throughout so many of my little playlists that I just play throughout the day to get me through, you know? What are other Betty tracks that you include on your various playlists? Um, you know, I love, you know, I'm a huge Radiohead fan and I love her recent cover of High and Dry. Oh, so good. You kill yourself for recognition. You kill yourself to never, ever stop You're broken of a mirror You're turning into someone You are not I've seen her do a couple times, I think, at Joe's Pub. And yeah. I was like, whenever she announced it, I think the way she tells it, I think Martha Plimpton sent it to her and was like, I want you to do this song. It was a brilliant choice by Martha yeah. Plimpton. And so like hearing Betty Buckley, I was like, oh my God, I fucking love this song. It's a Radiohead song. I can't believe Betty Buckley is covering like Tom York right now. And um, she's was, like so much, like she's definitely like, obviously like Broadway, like just like, true blue Broadway girl. I mean, that's beyond doubt. But she is definitely like in that way. I mean, I guess kind of Patti LuPone is like that too, where they're like a little bit like, they're really like cool rock and roll chicks, like in their heart, you know? And uh, 
Although, well, this you're not going to like, um, but, you know, I'm so obsessed with the Bette Midler recording of the Bob Dylan song made famous by the band I Shall Be Released, which is yeah. on her second album, self-titled. Yeah. So Good. obsessed with that track. And I know it was like a big uh, sort of go-to for Bette, like back in the day at the baths and everything. Yeah. And like when I was in college, I was so excited that I was like so into like a Bob Dylan song and I wanted to play it for my dad like wanting him to like you know like share my love and he was like ugh, what is what is the drummer doing what's that synth is this disco she ruined it she ruined it and i was just like so sad and offended oh benji and so cut to this was like uh summer after freshman year of college cut to like later that summer i am like home alone at my parents house and I'm blasting on the living room stereo Betty Buckley's then new album, The London Concert, another fabulous live album of hers. And she does on that album with the BBC Orchestra this amazing, amazing arrangement of um, Unchained Melody. Oh, yeah. And it just like builds and builds and it's just like so beautiful and, and rich and big and just fantastic. And... Um, so I'm just like dancing around the living room and Betty's just like, lonely rivers flow to the sea. And I'm just like getting my life. And I didn't realize my parents had come home, uh, because like it was so loud and, um, the song's over and like, my dad's like, that's fantastic. Who is that singing? What an incredible cover. I think that's even better than the original. And I'm like, go fucking figure. He yeah. won't get into bet, but he digs on the Betty. And I love it, that. You know, it really, but it jibes with what you're saying about her um, high and dry too. You know, yeah, she just has a way into like the emotional truth of a song that transcends genre and style. Totally, and I like that about her because she's, you know, she's like you said, a true blue Broadway performer. But she's also so, you know, it's about, it's not about the biz, just the biz for her. It's about the art. And she's an artist. She's not just Well, a- she's very not showbiz, I exactly, feel. Exactly, yeah. So it's... I mean, I think that's what she was telling us, like, about, like, how Hello, Dolly was difficult for her. Because, yeah. like, Jerry Zaks is so showbiz. And that yeah. show is so showbiz. And, you know, I think that's why she felt like it took her a long time to, like, feel like she could enjoy mm-hmm. it. You know, because... Yeah. I think like that's not what her go-to is. Her go-to is like something, you know, just deeper, darker, more twisted and complicated, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, she, she, um, she is not afraid to go in deep and dig deep and find, like she tells that story um, about uh, when she decided on her interpretation for Grizabella, when she's a that homeless woman with all like yes. the makeup on the street, like, Although interestingly, we shouldn't say it's all about darkness because what she'd said that's so interesting about that is like that she realized that it was about sharing her light actually. And that, that's true. And know, what's that? I actually wrote the quote down on my notebook, but it was something about like. It, was, it reminded me of something Lonnie Price said to me when I was scared. I was opening my show, um, Betty Issues. And um, <laughs> I was like, I'd never performed before and I was like so nervous. And, um, I was talking to Lonnie and he was like, just remember, it's a give, not a get. You're not going out there trying to get something from the audience. You're going out there trying to give something to them. And that's exactly what Betty basically says about what she learned from this homeless woman. And that yes. that Grizabella 
is like not oh feel sorry for me because like I'm past my prime yeah. but like I I want to share with you this beautiful gift that I have and the beauty and joy that I've seen you know yes yes and and she said something like you know Grizabella no matter how whatever she's become like she can still uh, see beauty or something like that and I thought that was so beautiful yeah, um, and you know, Betty doesn't want anybody comparing anything, and that's like harsh as her vibe. And I totally mm-hmm. respect that. God bless her. She's like a beautiful child of God, and she can like be love and light and hold hands, kumbaya. But we already got the interview in the can, so I can say whatever I want. Betty can't do a damn thing about it. <laughs> but her version of memory is so much better than all the other versions. It really like, is. And I'm I- sorry, like Elaine Page, Barbara Streisand have oh. fabulous voices and are thrilling performers, but their memory is like a schmaltzy pop song. And right. I mean, Betty sings that song. It's always interesting and compelling and dramatic and yeah. even more beautiful and thrilling and powerful than theirs. Yeah, I mean, when you hear Betty... Sorry, song, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. I mean, what you're saying is... So true <laughs> Hopefully she'll like, skip this part of the podcast and not right, listen right, to right. it. Betty, skip ahead. Um, no, it's so true. It's like, I, as much as I love Barbara, I hate her memory. And even though that was like a huge hit for her... Well, hate is strong. I mean, I, mean, I, I do I, appreciate... I, I hate it in comparison to the others, primarily Betty's. Yeah. Um, Betty's is the only one that I am into. Yeah, what are the other ones? I mean... Elaine Page. Elaine is the first one. Barbara. I don't, I don't mind hers, but Barbara, I don't. I, I don't. I mean, honestly, I like Elaine doing it later in life yeah. more than I like her version, like on the cast cats cast album. Mm-hmm. Like when I saw Elaine do it live, it had a little more like drama to it. I feel like on the cast album, it's very like. I mean, she probably had Angela Weber breathing down her neck. But yeah. regardless, though, I mean, you see Betty do it, and it's like you're watching like a sunrise over the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Like, you know, um, and uh, well, the woman that did it uh, on Broadway in the revival—it's a good thing I can't remember her name. Oh, Nicole Nicole Scherzinger or whatever. No, she did it in London in the revival. Oh, she I did not come to Broadway. Right. The woman that did it on Broadway was another pop song, oh, another pop singer. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Bleeding Love. Um, I'll think of her. Uh, I know she was awful. I mean, her voice was great, but she was terrible. You cut me open and I. Her name is. I don't know her. Um, they're screaming at and the woman that replaced her was much better. I went back and saw it a couple of times. Uh, and she was actually, she did something really amazing. I bas- she basically did the entire like climax, like in one breath. It was kind of just like exciting, like watching like an amazing, um, 
like athlete, you know. Leona Lewis is her name, by the way. Yeah, I was not a fan. But uh, Mamie Parrish, that was the woman that that replaced her, and she was fantastic. But still, it is nothing. I mean, whether you're watching Betty do it in concert today or on the Tony Awards performance in costume as Grizabella, mm. or there's an amazing... Um, from I think it was the 1989 Tonys when one of the times Angela hosted when they do this thing about like 11 o'clock numbers. And so um, the first, first she introduces Betty and Betty comes out and she looks fantastic. She's wearing this like silver, like um, iridescent, like long coat over this like really tight black velvet or black silk, maybe like um, strapless, like halter and like these like long black like palazzo pants or something and she sing comes out and just sings memory and it's like she might as well be in costume i mean she's giving you like the weird like like trembling fingers on the end like it's just and she it's so thrilling and also larry kurt is being alive which is pretty great and angela does send in the clowns which is great Mm -hmm. um for the 11 o'clock numbers but um but is Anyway, what I was, the point is every single time you see Betty do memory, it's like she takes you, it's weird. I mean, it is very much like Patty doing Don't Cry For Me, that on one hand, she takes you really back to this like moment like in the play, in the character. Yeah. But also at the same time, she makes it feel very much like it's about her in the real, real time moment. Yeah. And it's like completely spontaneous and like happening in front of your eyes, like authentically yeah I, I like that um I mean it's kind of we, we talked about it in some of the concerts how like whenever people perform this song like I felt that way when who was it um Jerry Orbach was singing try to remember it's kind of like he, you need to like elevate it and take it to a new place whenever you're doing a song out of context you know I mean I don't know Jerry Orbach had that freaking direction of like having to like walk through the dressing room (laughs) i mean (laughs) i don't know if anybody could have rescued that staging i don't know if we should blame him or not but Uh, um yeah anyway Uh, but i want to it's so they i want to go back to what you said about angela singing sin in the clowns is that i saw your little face have a little moment when i said that i was like what's his face um is that that's not an 11 o'clock number well, if you're going by my strict definition from last week when I went off on Sondheim and Into the Woods. No, uh, no it, would, it was during our live stream. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, I mean, it, it doesn't have the 11 o'clock-ness that I like to think of like a rose's turn. It's not even place in the show, right? Sending the Clowns? Yeah, it is. It's like at the... It's like... Isn't it like the middle of Act 2? No, you just think that because Act Two hardly has any songs. So, like, I always like, think of Act Two as uh, of Night Music. I always think of the Miller Sun as the eleven o'clock number. Um, I don't even remember which comes first in terms of the chronological order. Nini Clowns definitely comes first. Well, Angela Lansbury in the nineteen eighty nine Tonys chose to refer to Send in the Clowns. <laughs> I don't know why the I'm going to die on this hill, but like. I mean, Angela <laughs> didn't want to sing the Miller Sun. Um, I mean, I don't know. You, this show, I mean, 11 o'clock number is not a real thing. It's not like looking at the human body and being like, no, that is the left ventricle, not that. Like, I mean, 11 o'clock number is, it's something like, um, you know, it's like the Upper West Side. It means what you want it to mean. Go on. Okay. Like, 
you know, you could argue that it's sending the clowns because it's Desiree's song and she's a more important character. Or, and it's like obviously the most famous song like in the world. So it kind of has 11 o'clock vibes about it. You could also maybe argue it's the Miller son because that's a little more like big and belty and showstoppery. Yeah. But also not really. Like the truth is most audiences are like, oh my God, sending the clowns. Whereas the Miller son, they're like, what? The who in the Prince of Wales? What are you talking about? <laughs> so like, you know, and even though like we're gay for Sondheim, and like, we're like, the Miller's son, she's going to belt a D. Like general audiences are like, what is this weird song? I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. like I think for the general audience, sending the clowns is the 11 o'clock number. And as far as, as far <laughs> as your point about like chronologically, I think you're right that it does come before but just the Miller's son. It's only one, it's only one track ahead. But there is like a bunch of book shit that happens. No, no, no. They're like back to back. Like those things happen very close to each other. They happen within, like they're both within 20 minutes of the end of the show. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That, that is true. Um, uh, I mean, the Miller son happens like weirdly, like right after that scene. It's like all very close together. Yeah, you're right. Moments. I actually, did I tell you, I recently uh, went. By the way, fun fact, Betty Buckley played Desiree. We need to get this. Betty played Desiree in a BBC concert version of oh. music in the 90s. Like when she was in Sunset Boulevard in London in the 90s, people like lost their fucking minds. Mm-hmm. And she did the okay. BBC concert and she did the BBC um, A Little Night Music. And she was just like all over the place in London at that moment. Uh, I like that. We need um, to get that recording of A Little Night Music. Yeah. And I know just who to ask for it. <laughs> who? My friend, Kevin Daly, a friend of the pod oh, on Twitter. He has all the Sondheim stuff. He and David Levy both. They can get you anything you need. All, all those BBC concerts. That's how I got that um, BBC concert of Mame with Julia McKenzie. Mmm. They um, have all the stuff. I love that. Yeah. There was also a BBC concert of Follies around that time where Donna McKechnie played Phyllis. Mm. Um, even though she had also played Sally in the Paper Mill Playhouse production. That's interesting. I would have... I mean, I guess she could do either, but I would have... No, no, she's a Sally. I think it's weird that yeah. she played Phyllis. I'm just telling I you that. Okay, calm down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, um... Anyway, okay, let's wrap this up. Let's wrap this mother up. Um, so long story short, we stan Betty Buckley. For some reason, when I was in high school, I was obsessed with this idea of like Betty Buckley playing Mary Martin roles. Yeah, I like that. And when I was in high school, I believed that Betty Buckley had played Peter Pan on Broadway. I don't know why I thought that. You have to understand this is before the age of like IBDB or anything. But in my mind, Betty Buckley was like one of the great Broadway Peter Pans. And I really wanted her to star in a revival of South Pacific. And I used to agonize in my mind over like when she would do this Broadway revival of South Pacific and who was the right person to star opposite her. For the uh, Some Enchanted Evening guy role? Emile Debeck, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I didn't know opera stars, but I kind of wanted Betty to have a proper operatic base, just like Mary Martin and Florence Henderson had had. But I also didn't know the names of any operatic base I. So um, I was like, I was like, hear me out. Could Mandy Patinkin do it? Absolutely not. Correct. 
Um, anyway, okay, well, let's talk to Betty Lynn B. Broken record, broken record, broken record. It's Betty Buckley. How are you? Oh, there yay, she is. Betty. Hi. 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 How are you? I'm good. I'm good. so happy to see you. Good to see you too. You look beautiful, Betty, Thank in you. your home. Oh my God, I put on lipstick and makeup for you. Oh my I'm, God. I'm honored. I haven't had any on for days. <laughs> you and Ben are both wearing competing athleisure oh, yeah, brands. I know. So I have to. It's like, we have different corporate sponsorships. It's the quarantine. <laughs> That's right. How to well, stay engaged. <laughs> I'm, I'm obsessed. Oh, by the way, I, I was texting with, I don't know if I've ever told you that I'm friends with your niece, Erin. Oh, no, you never did. did you is, uh, actually, Daniel and I are both in writing group with her at the public theater. Oh, that's right. Yes. Oh, so cool. And so she said to send you her love. How um, do I get in a writing group? I tried to write a couple of songs for the last Carlisle gig I did. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up writing this one song. But, you know, Christian Jacob, my pianist, yeah. the director, collaborator for about 10 years, I guess. And we've done several albums together. He's great. I mean, and he's great. Yeah two movies by um, Clint Eastwood. I had this whole fantasy of writing this song. So I, you know, we're going to be at the Carlisle for two weeks and it turned out to be one week. But, you know, some of my great experiences at the Carlisle were with Elaine Stritch, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, In in my first experience at the Carlisle was um, the Eartha Kitt had got sick. And so the guy that was booking the room, who was this guy named Jerry Kravitz, do you remember him? Oh, sure, yeah. He called me and had me come in and sub this one weekend for Eartha Kit. And it turned out to be the biggest snowstorm in New York history. Oh and so, God. like, maybe there were five people at each oh, wow. club, you know, over that weekend. It was ridiculous. And then I started working there and had some really nice long-term engagements there uh, for a number of years. And then I moved over to Feinstein's at the Regency yeah. for a period of time. And they were really good to me, especially right after I moved to Texas, because, mm-hmm. you know, I was really bereft of New York. I made this big decision to move to a ranch in Texas. And then I got down here and I was like, I knew I had to do it just for my soul, you know, in my heart. And I needed to ride these horses and find this cutting horse and all that. But at the same time, I was really missing New York. I mean, really missing New York. So, um, so Feinstein's kept booking me back like, six weeks, eight weeks, a month long engagement for several years. So I had this like extended engagement in New York, living at the Regency Hotel, which was special. And in that time period, Elaine had moved from the Carlisle to the Regency. Yes. Oh. My early engagements at the Carlisle, Elaine lived at the hotel and she would come down and stand at the bar and critique me during my show. (laughs) (laughs) It was like amazing, you know. I was like, and, but anyway, I love her. I just love her. We had this like really weird relationship. Um, I actually met her when I was like 22 years old. Um, A friend of mine, our mutual friend from 1776 gave like a brunch at his Upper West Side apartment and invited me and invited, you know, uh, Elaine. And I was like, so fascinated by her. But from that point, whenever I was troubled in any way about making some big decision, and I, you know, I have a propensity for making decisions to shoot myself in the foot, you know, <laughs> repetitively throughout my history. And she would really, I would run into her on the streets in New York. Mm. And she would take me to coffee and say, what's going on with you? You know, and I'd be like, nothing. And she's like, yeah, there is. 
Mm. And then she would advise me on what I should and shouldn't do. And one time I was in a Broadway show and she came backstage after the performance and went through the backstage area and followed all the way across the stage to my quick change booth. I hadn't even taken off my costume. Oh my God. And was like, like, where is she? Where is she? <laughs> and she comes into the quick change room and says, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, nothing, Elaine, I'm fine. And she's like, no, you're not. Tell me what's wrong with you. So I begrudgingly, you know, shared with her this scenario that I was really, really uh, upset about something business-wise and there was no good alternative. Mm. She told me the story of a musical she did before she did uh, Sail Away with yeah. the Coward thing. And how Noel Coward had come to see her in that. Mm. Goldilocks. Was it? I don't yeah. know. The show. <laughs> yes. And uh, told her how great she was. And, and it was a very similar experience to what I was having. And so she said, who cares? Just do this. And she said, and go do it now. And she sent me out into the streets to solve this situation. And um, anyway, she was, I, I really think of her, people said, you should write a book. And I think I would call it Elaine Stritch is my guardian angel, you know, because yes. she's, so I wanted to write this song. So I wrote this, I haven't written, you know, I used to write songs as a hobbyist. You I never, bought my baby. I, yeah. I just, I don't, I don't think I'm a, you know, I think I'm, I don't know. I, I, I'm very judgmental of my lyrics. And so I tried to write this thing and Christian wasn't having it. And I wrote these two pieces. One was about Elaine Stritch and the other was about this experience I had watching Judy Collins at the Carlisle. And I thought it'd be really cool to have these two songs. Yeah. So he, he fi I finally got him to write the music for the Elaine Stritch song. And uh, he didn't really get my other song. And it was more like a, um, it's, it's a very sweet little story. It's like more like a story than a song. We finished the song for Elaine Stritch and I debuted it at the Carlisle. It was really cool. And um, I'm, I'm happy about that. So now he's finally finished the music for this other piece, which is more like verse, you know, mm. in a story. And it's really lovely. And I want it to be like an animated short. I'm now looking to oh, translate fantastic. it as an animated short. I love short. that. And anyway, this is all about the writing thing. Yeah. Right? So I thought about these two scenarios, these two songs for months before I sat down and started working on them. Mm. And then when I started working on them, I would spend hours in a sitting just like trying to, you know, and then trying to figure out to explain it musically to Christian. Yeah. And then I would go and suddenly I would have this inspiration on the street of hearing this piece of music. I thought that really fits. And then I'd find it on YouTube and then I'd, I'd do my lyric over that piece of music. So he'd understand what I was going for. Oh. And then finally, uh, but I, I feel so insecure about my writing and it's crazy because I'm, I have a journalism degree. I've worked on newspapers and everything. I know how to write, but it's like, I, I, I just like, oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. Well, I definitely think you should come to our writing group because it's so much about yeah. getting that, that confidence and getting over really? that nonsense, you know? And I, I have a wonderful, actually he's in our writing group, but he's living in LA now. So he hasn't been coming, but there's the guy that directed my plays um, is named Aaron Mark. And he also wrote and directed, um, that show Empanada Loca that Daphne Rubin Vega did that was like, you would have loved this show, Betty. It was like the Sweeney Todd story, but it was this one woman show and she was the Sweeney Todd character. Oh, cool. She 
but she, so she was a massage therapist in Washington Heights, this Dominican woman. And the Mrs. Lovett character who we never meet was her boyfriend who made empanadas out of the people that she gave the massages to. So gross. Oh, it's so gross. (laughs) It was brilliant. Anyway, he's so smart, Aaron Mark. And he said to me, writing happens in your fingers, not in your head. Oh, that well, was like I on these for like months in my head, and then exactly. when I sat down, it was so fucking. You hot. could be twelve. You could be twenty-five songs further now if you, you know. But mm-hmm. anyway, uh, but I wanted to ask you this. One of the things that came up for me rewatching this wonderful Bravo profile mm-hmm. is about you having gotten a journalism degree, and I'm so curious. I mean, the first thing I thought was, well, even if you hadn't gone and done 1776 even if you hadn't met Roger Hess, if you'd been in journalism, it wouldn't have been too long before you were, I don't know, hosting a morning show and next thing you know, in a Broadway musical. You know, I could still see the path. I, I, I really owe my career to Roger Hess. It's like, uh, you know, my father, I, I, my father was a, a very strict person. And I, you know, I'm really glad it was my father because he was really tough. Yeah. He was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And my mother um, wanted to be a singer-dancer, but then my father wouldn't let her. So she was getting my dance classes and getting sneaking me out of the house for that all during my growing up. And this caused great fights between my mother and father, which was then when my talent, the clarity of my talent manifested itself around age 11. Yeah. Uh, it was it was not um, a happy environment, mm. so to speak, around my talent. So I have a lot of consternation about that remaining. You know, I've had to be in therapy since I was 21 years old to resolve, to basically to give myself permission to do what I'm here to do, which is sing and act and tell stories, you know, so. Were there things though? Words, but anyway, that's it. In a nutshell. It's fascinating. I mean, but it's, were there things that you didn't get to do because of your father? Because like watching that Bravo video, it seems like I, you played Dainty June and Gypsy and then you were going to do um, Miss Texas. I mean, it, it seems like, yeah, you were that was funny my, my mother, my mother made all those things happen. You know, when I was 11 and she took me to see Pajama Game with the original mm. Flopsy choreography, I was enchanted. And I had this like epiphanal moment, epiphany of that. That's what I would be doing for the rest of my life when I saw the steam heat number. And then I came home a couple months later and told my mother I wanted to learn that for our junior high talent show. And it just so happened that the guys that were the choreographer and the lead dancer on that show were a couple named Ed uh, Holloman and Larry Howard. And they decided they were tired of touring and doing, you know, dancing on Broadway and touring. And they had done a lot of Broadway um, tours for Fosse's material and stuff. And they were great uh, <clears throat> neophytes of, I mean, not neophytes, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Acolytes? The, you know, the, a Fosse. Yeah. He's like, so they knew everything. Um, and so my mother, they opened a dance studio that same fall that I wanted to audition for this junior high talent show called the Monic Fallers. And I wanted to learn steam heat. I just knew I had to do that. And my mother, and I could dance, you know, because my training since I was three with my aunt. And so she called them because she saw that their ad in the newspaper. So my mother, my daughter wants to learn steam heat. Um, and they said, well, bring her in for it. So I, she, booked me a private lesson and I went in and they just said, you know, can you dance? I said, yeah. And they said, can you sing? I said, yeah. And they said, sing this. I got steam heat. So 
I did, but, and they said, no, no, sing it as loud as you can. So I was like, <laughs> you know, cause I knew I had this giant voice cause I'd been practicing in my bedroom, you know, like for <laughs> years. What, what would you sing in your bedroom? Well, I would imitate, that? my mother had this amazing cast album collection mm. of every Broadway show. And I loved all that, but I also had, um, she also had some of the great lady singers and somehow or another, we got the Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall album. And I could match her note by note and tone by tone. I can sing that whole album. And I was fascinated with the fact that I could sing exactly like Judy Garland, do you know, when I was really young. And um, my other favorite singer was Michael Jackson. Mm. And I remember like singing to Michael Jackson's, you've got to be there looking out over this Texas plane. We had a split level house and my bedroom had a little a balcony on the back of the house and I would stand out on the balcony and sing to this plane with this old windmill and stuff this cattle pasture and I would I knew one day I remember this moment um it was like two epiphanies one was when I saw steam heat and knew that's what I would be doing that that's what I was here to do and the second was when I was 13 after I had uh, started performing all the time what happened was I learned steam heat from these guys and they took me on as a student. I studied tap ballet jazz with them. They choreographed steam heat with all the original choreography and all the hat tricks and the whole bit. My mother had this little tiny black suit made with a bow tie and I had the little tie shoes and the whole bit. And I loved it. It was so cool. And, um, I did the number at the, they put me on right before the senior girls can can line, you know, and, um, and the, I'll never forget that breathless silence of an audience. And then mm. everybody went crazy. Mm. And that was my, that was the beginning of my being an 11 o'clock number specialist. That's what I do. Yeah. I'm the 11 o'clock number specialist. And um, so I remember running off stage to this big ovation and the, the principal, Mr. Bostwick was like, go back, go back, take another mm. bow. And so I ran back out for my curtain call. You know, it was like, it was so much fun. So at the beginning, it was super fun. And then my mother started entering me in these contests, you know, where I'd be competing against a boy who played an oboe and a, a, a ballerina who couldn't stay on point from Nacogdoches, you know, it's like stuff like that. And I was like, this is where I got really sensitive to comparisons, which I talked to you about then. Yeah. I was like, how does a boy playing an oboe and a dancer? who can't stay on point compared to a 11 years or 11 year old or 12 year old singer how do they rate that you know it's like how does that compare I I couldn't grasp it and then when I was 15 they entered me in the Miss Teenage pageant which I was like oh my god and my dad approved the pageants which I never understood I never understood the hypocrisy of that because I was like this budding young feminist and I didn't really find a language for my feelings about feminism like I observed the indiscretions of our neighbors you know this guy was having an affair on his wife and I was their babysitter and I was just like you know and I I couldn't understand so many, like, why were women given this certain set of principles or mo- a moral standard and men didn't have the same one? I couldn't understand that because as far as I could see, we were all equal. I didn't like the pageant thing. And um, then I was recruited when I was 18 for the Miss Fort Worth pageant. I didn't like that. But I got Miss Fort Worth and then I was in the Miss Texas pageant, which was like a four-day event or something. And I didn't like that. But um, I sure got a lot out of it. You know, I got all these scholarships and, and I was then invited 
to uh, be on the Miss America pageant when I was a junior in college as one of the guest entertainers <clears throat> to represent all of the girls in America who don't make it to Atlantic City. So basically, I represented all of the losers. You know, <laughs> that was my big claim to be. What did you sing there? Uh, oh, I sing a lot of things because we did some group numbers and then I did oh. some solos. And this great arranger, Glenn Osser, who was a brilliant arranger, he wrote these beautiful orchestrations for me. And I picked this, one of the songs I sang in one of the preliminary nights was No Easy Way Down. By oh, Dusty Springfield. Springfield. Yeah. yeah. He wrote me a beautiful <sighs> chart of that. And um, so he, that was my, you know, I was working with big orchestras in the Miss Fort Worth competition, the Miss Texas competition and then the Miss America pageant. So, you know, I was, and I, we did it, we, oh, we did on a clear day. Oh, hurry, it's lovely up here. Hurry, it's here on ladders and dance and all this stuff. Anyway, that was a blast. And it was because of being on television that Roger Hess's assistant had this woman that was their friend call and say, you should get your boss to watch this girl on television and so they did and they called me in Atlantic City and had me fly to New York to audition for all these agents or about 12 agents and that used to be Ashley Famous and it's now ICM so mm. this major agent there that w- worked with Roger named Eric Shepard I remember him standing up after my I sang and said sign her and walked out of the room you know so Roger became my responsible agent along with Eric and um, he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I, I got to finish school. My dad will kill me. I got to do that. And so I was a journalism major. But at the theater program at TCU, there was a guy named Dr. Jack Cogdell, who had been my mother's. He'd been the director and she'd been the choreographer of a college show they did at Texas Tech. And so, which is where she went to school. And so she said, oh, Dr. Cogdell, Jack Cogdell, go tell him you're my daughter. So I took a survey of theater course from him when I was a freshman Mm. and I was there on journalism scholarship from all the work. I had a teen column when I was in high school on the local newspaper, you know, uh, a teen page actually where I would go out and get interviews with all the various high schools in, in Fort Worth and write about all these kids and what they were up to. And it was super fun. And so that was my job. And I was a a rodeo reporter at the Fort Worth press and, I, you know, just hung out at the rodeo grounds and found stories and would write future stories and stuff. Did you ever miss that? Did you ever want to do more of that at later points in your, in your uh, life? I can't say that I miss it too much. I've written some things. I wrote some stuff for Miss Magazine when I was younger and here and there. Dr. Cogdell, when I introduced myself to him, he took an interest in me because of my mother having been his friend. And he quickly sussed out that I had this difficult father and in a difficult home situation that I wasn't really free to make my own decisions for my career path. He instituted a theater minor program at TCU wow. where there hadn't been one before, just so I could be involved with the theater department. So I was a journalism major theater minor, but then he then started picking projects that I could do every year. Like he gave me the, my first play. I played Mrs. Antrobus in Skin of Our Teeth mm. when I was like a junior or something. And I remember having a really 
profound experience on stage of doing this monologue about women and women's dignity and rights and stuff and feeling really passionate and emotional about that. And that's the first time I felt that on stage in front of an audience, you know, mm. and then, um, my senior year, he picked Brigadoon so I could play Meg, you know, he cast me as Meg and, um, yeah, you know, the guy, you know, and he gave me so much experience. And then I started working, I started working professionally at Casa Manana, our regional theater. When I was 15, I played Dainty June in Gypsy. And that was my first professional job. And I danced in West Side Story as Baby John's Girl. And then every year after that, I played, uh, I did something at Casa. I played Ada Annie, I think when I was 18. I played Sue in Oklahoma. I played Susan in a Desert Song, Maisie in The Boyfriend. Um, I, I had a lot of experience by the time I got to New York, you know. Yeah. But the summer after I graduated, they invited me to go on this USO tour with Miss America. And... Um, she and I were 21 and Charlotte uh, Sims, who uh, was also 21. And the rest of the girls in the troupe, there were about six of us or seven, six, I guess, seven, seven of us. And they, uh, we were the three oldest and they would take us into all the intensive care units because we were 21 and the other girls were younger um, to see all these young soldiers that were dying. Mm. And, you know, from, and I, so when I was 21, I saw firsthand, experienced firsthand the results of war. And I had my first love affair my, when I was 21, my senior year in, in college with this uh, backup quarterback to the Dallas Cowboys. And he, uh, you know, took six months to woo me, but having wooed me could care less, you know. And that was my first, mm -hmm. like, realization of what that game was all about. And he broke my heart. I mean, he devastated me. And the sad thing was my parents, I had this other boyfriend who was a TCU football player, and he was just bereft because I, you know, started dating this guy. But he gave me a bad time, too. So whatever. It's like, that's no problem. But um, uh, so this guy was so savvy, the, the football, the Dallas Cowboy. He would literally come and hang out with my parents and bring them gifts and wait for me to come home, you know, which would really mess with my boyfriend. So I, you know, I'd never been pursued like that. So of course I was like, oh, you know, and this guy obviously is in love with me and da, da, da. And um, my father's like, you will be a virgin until you're married. And so <laughs> it was like, it was really uh, difficult, right? The guy, so I had, had, you know, I really thought I was going to marry this guy. And then I went on this USO tour and he was writing me ardent love letters and blah, blah, blah. And, and it was just gross. And, um, so when I got back, um, I've had no incentive to move to New York. I just was like, I'll take my job at the newspaper. This, I'm, I'm in, involved with this jerk. And, you know, I didn't have the word asshole at that point. Um, and um, so I was just working at the paper and Roger keeps calling. You've you got to come to New York, got to come to New York. I was like, oh, I can't. My dad doesn't want me blah, 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 to do that. And, um, and, but I had no heart for it anyway, because everything seemed futile because of what I'd experienced in the hospitals in Korea and Japan of all the Vietnam wounded. I've never seen anything like it. And my father, having been a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, believed in war. He believed that war was righteous. And I was like a child of the 60s, and I'm like, no. But Roger Hess was the reason he got me out of Texas. Um, he, he called me and said, come, you and your mother come see this. What do they call those shows? Um, oh, I forgot the name of it. Um, 
they used to do them all the time. These shows. Oh, like an industrial? Industrial show. Thank you. And so it, he, my mother and I went to Dallas and saw this show starring Flip Wilson in a band called Your Father's Mustache. <laughs> and so Roger told them I was a singer. So they brought me up on stage and Roger did this knowingly because the buyer was in the audience mm. from B.F. Goodrich. And, um, and I, the only song I knew the key I sang it in was you made me love you. So I told him you made me love you and whatever that key was. So I did, you made me love you and everybody went crazy. And so the buyer says, let's put her in the show. So, uh, they paid me a bunch of money, which was crazy. It was way more than I was making at the newspaper and the newspaper was so nice. They were like, you know, but I, I just had to travel on the weekends and so my dad couldn't deny the money. And so he had to let me go. I mean, I was 21 at this point. I should have been able to go, right? And so um, we went to, where all did we go? We went to San Francisco, Atlanta, Chicago. And the last stop was Philadelphia. And Roger says, just train it in from Philadelphia and I'll get you another. I've got another industrial show for you at Gimbel's department store for six weeks. So we'll try the city for six weeks. And then if you don't like it, you can go home. And again, for good money. So I called my newspaper and I said, I've got this job for six weeks. And they were like, go, go. Because the only people in Fort Worth that didn't want me to go do this was my dad. You know, everybody else was like, yes, yes, you've got to go sing on Broadway. And, um, you know, because I knew, oh, that's why I forgot to do my other epiphany when I was singing on the balcony to Michael Jackson, you've got to be there. I was 13 and I had this epiphany of, who I would grow to be and how my voice would sound and how it would affect people. Mm -hmm. And then years later when I was 35 and I'd done the cast album for cats and the engineer and the producer brought the album into my dressing room at the winter guard for me to hear the final mix. And I'd been very frustrated on the recording session because I didn't think I sang it as well as I knew how to sing it. I just felt a lot of pressure and I was like, uh, and so I didn't like it. And they were fine. They were like, we've got it. We've got it. Get out of here. And I'm like, no, I've got to do it again. It's not good enough. And whatever. So I was really dismayed. I thought I hadn't done it well. So they brought it in and played it for me. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I had this realized remembrance of my 13 year old epiphany. And I remembered the moment standing in the balcony door and looking out at the plane and how I knew that I would grow to be this kind of singer and I'd have this voice that would affect people a certain way. And I'd studied at that point for 13 years with Paul Gavert, who's an incredible teacher. And uh, so memory, learning how to sing memory and cats brought me through the doorway of my potential that I'd been studying, studying, studying for so many years to learn how to do, but it took a long time. And Finally, there it was, and I heard it, and I was like, oh, it took from age 13 to 35, but there it is. And then suddenly learning how to do memory uh, with, you know, the direction of Trevor Nunn and working with Andrew and wonderful Julian Lynn and, you know, doing that show. That was the, I think, was my master's uh, thesis, like the, that was my master's dissertation. And I came through the doorway of my potential with that show. And before that, on Eight is Enough, <clears throat> I did that for four years. And that was one of the hardest jobs of my life, mainly because of the producers. They were terrible people and cruel. And 
So um, they, um, so I, I kept going to the dailies. They didn't want me to, but I needed to learn how to act better. And I didn't think I was a good enough actress. So I went and I- You said, hadn't done Tender Mercies yet, right? That was no, after? Tender Mercies was shot right before Cats. Uh, oh, that late. And then uh, it came out right after Cats opened. So ju- just Carrie was the only thing you had done on camera before yeah. Eight is Enough? Uh-huh. So I did Carrie, then Eight is Enough, and then uh, Cats. But no, then we shot Tender Mercies that winter, and then Cats. Mm. And then <clears throat> they came, Tender Mercies came out after Cats opened. So your, your master's degree was a double major in film and musical theater. That's right. Both <laughs> my two master's dissertations, and it was after those two projects. But see, I'd been studying film acting by, by literally getting to do 29 episodes a year for four years, wow. watching my daily, saying, okay, that 10 seconds over there and that footage, that works, this doesn't, why? And then at the same time, I was studying with Stella Adler, Mm. Um, in LA yeah in LA and in New York when I was in New York I took her acting classes and her script analysis classes which were amazing and I learned so much but I would I was too afraid to work for her I never put my work in front of her I stayed in the back row and dug down and just took notes because I never I knew I wasn't strong enough to survive her critiques Mm. because I knew I wasn't there yet just watching her work with other young actors like it was amazing. Um, her demonstrations when she, I remember this girl was doing um, uh, uh, Ophelia and it, she was like, no, and she sits up and she demonstrates. And she was like, I don't know, in her 60s or 70s or something. And her demonstration, she suddenly became this girl. It was like, oh my God, you know, this, she was amazing. So I, <clears throat> I learned a lot just watching her classes and observing as auditing, you know. Betty, but- were you always, like, I? one thing I feel like I've just known intrinsically from when I first became aware of you was mm-hmm. that you're a seeker. Yeah. You, yeah. you know, and, and I, when so when you were just, like, in your early 20s and, you know, doing 1776 and Promises, Promises, I mean, before all this phase, were, were you always that way? Were you Were you always just learning and seeking and, and on this sort of spiritual path from that right well, away. Yeah, the beginning was just learning to how to heal the wounds from my, my family experience and how to give myself permission. I mean, after, I did 1776 for seven months and I was really confused because this boyfriend, the original lover I had when I was, you know, in TCU and the Dallas Cowboy, Whenever I would become successful or visible again, he would chase me again. And so it took me years to free myself of that. It was like a nightmare. And, um, but he, you know, it was really an impossible situation for me because I knew he was lying, you know, and I knew, um, but, you know, it was was a horrible thing to extricate myself from. And then when I got promises, which was a year in London alone, I was away from the influence of my family. I was away from this guy. And so, and I mean, that was scary. And talk about lonely. Oh my God. So learning how to deal with aloneness and again, kind people that helped me along the way and, and having this kind of attention. I was the young leading lady at 22 in London. I was nominated for best actress by the evening standards awards. I sat next to, 
uh, Laurence Olivier at those awards. Uh, I was pursued by uh, Richard Harris and uh, Topol, and uh, I had lunch one day with Dudley Moore and wow. uh, Robert Mitchum and uh, wow. some other, and uh, you know, and I was just this young girl that was like. And because of the whole experience with my father, I didn't ever know when men, like I didn't know my, uh, I just didn't know things. I don't know how to explain. I was yeah. very naive. Mm. And so I didn't know uh, so many things. And so, yeah. And, and then you, there were other Americans in the cast, right? It was Tony Roberts and yeah. um, was Donna McCackney in that company she also? Was for six weeks and then she left. Mm. But I would stand backstage and watch her dance every night. She was yeah. so great. Was so great. And I got to work with Michael Bennett and uh, Charlie Blackwell, who was this amazing stage manager who directed us into the show. And then I got to work with Backrack and David and, and uh, Neil Simon and... Everybody. You got to give us that cast album to last for the yeah, ages. Huh? But there's yeah. no, but there's no chaperone. You're like a kid, and you're in London, yeah, and, and on my own, and I'm, you know, yeah. I knew nothing, and so um, yeah. But I, you know, I learned a lot, and so then I had to when I came back to New York, and I went back into 1776. Oh, you know, um, I, I needed help, you know, so I saw therapist and stuff mm-hmm. i mean was that a crazy idea for you coming from texas like what would your parents have thought in 1970 about you going into therapy uh well, it was pretty uh yeah that was confusing like a weird that was like a weird thing for you to do yeah um oh i should tell you some good things about my dad yeah so I was doing getting my act together and taking it on the road i did it yes. for like three months on my hiatus from it is enough at the end of the second year, I guess. And then at the end of the third, during, at the end, no, I guess it was the, the hiatus between year two and year three, maybe, no, year three and year four. And so then Gretchen opened it, and Gretchen Cryer opened it in L.A., and they asked me to replace Gretchen, and I was doing eight is enough. So I was shooting eight is enough at daytime and doing, getting my act together at night, which was hard, you know, yeah. doing both of those things. So I was making good money in that time period. And I was thinking every year I would consider buying a house. And I lived at the Chateau Marmont Hotel. So I was doing this play and, and I thought, okay, I'm going to get a house, you know. And so I finally found this little house, but I thought it had some structural issues. In, in my L.A.? Life. Yeah, in L.A. And my father was, um, he wrote a textbook on construction management and mm-hmm. was an architect among his other talents. He had many. And so he was a poet. He was a painter. He did all these things. Mm-hmm. And um, he's a brilliant guy. And he uh, he was out there on some consulting trip anyway. So I invited him to come see this house to advise me if I should buy it or not. And he liked that I was asking for his opinion and stuff. And so then he came to see me and getting my act together that night. And so I was taking him back to his hotel in my car afterwards after the show. And he says, you know, Buddy Lynn, I was always worried about you going into show business because I think you have a very fine mind. And I thought that would be a really waste of your intelligence. And he said, but I see tonight in watching you in the play that you really care about people, don't you? I said, well, I think so, Dad. And he said, 
And I think what you're doing is really good for people. I think that Mm. your work tonight really touched people. And I can see that you're very sincere. Mm. And I want to tell you, I admire that. And I said, wow, dad, that's great. Thank you so much. You know, like being an actor, it evolutionarily, historically, we're part of the healing arts, Mm. you know? Um, and journalism actually goes quite nicely with, you know, acting, storytelling, because the original storytellers were the balladeers, the original newspaper journalists were the balladeers mm-hmm. that went from town to town to town and sang the news. <laughs> well, so speaking of that, what, what, when did you, that empowerment of starting to create your own work, to tell the stories that you want to tell, not just in auditioning for other people's things or being asked to do them, but when you do these concerts and cabaret shows, that are so personal and so artistic Thank in you. how you do them. How did that, because uh, um, I know like that first album you recorded live, that was not your first concert. I mean, that was like what, 87? I've been in jazz clubs and stuff since I was in college. I was a college cheerleader, you know? And so mm-hmm. I thought like these jazz ladies I really loved, I mean, apart from Judy Garland and those albums, they all had mature husky voices, you know? So I would go out and scream at the football games to get my voice sound really husky because I thought my like lyric soprano mezzo high soprano mezzo girl was too it sounded too girly to me and i wanted one of these darker voices so So imagine how stupid that's how naive and stupid i was silly (gasps) i mean maybe stupid is not right but silly now i look back at that i was like betty lynn why would you do that why didn't you cherish what you had there but i didn't you know and um but i sang at this place called casa del sol with these jazz musicians and you know, and I sang, uh, I worked with this jazz um, pianist named James Davis, and we did lots and lots of concerts. And so I really started concertizing and stuff from the time I was Miss Fort Worth. I was asked to do shows in college mm-hmm. and um, all that. So, yeah, I had a lot of experience doing that. But <clears throat> I guess my first invitation to do cabaret work was, well, my first concert was after Cats. I did the Rizzoli album that became it was a was so that really was your first you hadn't done anything even small pre-night concert event to raise money for the homeless at saint bart's church and so we had the i don't know the uh the where the presence of mind to record them and um we shot them on video too that nobody ever uh released those but it's kind of like uh it's kind of a raw looking tape the footage and stuff but um, so one of the people that was at that concert was Charles Scribner, who, um, along with uh, his friend at um, Rizzoli, decided to finance that record and release it. Mm. That was my first recording. And so that was pretty cool. Um, but then I was asked to do some cabaret at Rainbow and Stars, that, you know, on top of the... Yeah, rock. sure. And it was a beautiful room. And, um, but I, I just thought, well, I'm a singer. I didn't know I had to talk to the audience. (laughs) I remember Regis Philbin and uh, somebody else being in the front row. uh, And they were really perplexed because all I did was sing, you know, and my friends were like, you've got to talk to the audience. I was like, well, I don't have anything to say. What do they want to say? What are we talking about? And so... I try to talk about the songs and that, and then there's this guy, I don't know if you remember, maybe this is pre your time, uh, Bob Harrington, 
who wrote for Backstage. He was this kind of a cabaret authority, and he had this whole formula of what he thought cabaret should be. And he would write reviews about my work saying, you know, it's beautifully sung, but it's not cabaret. And I'd be like, what, how is it not cabaret? And, you know, and then he, a couple of reviewers trash memory in the context. And I was like, memory is my child, right? (laughs) Memory out of the show in an act of vengeance, you know, because I was so mad about anyone commenting about memory, you know, and because that was my, the jewel. Mm -hmm. So I took it out of the show one night and I remember uh, this proprietor Bismarck, Bismarck Irving, I think it was the uh, proprietor of Rainbow and Stars or the, the maitre d'. And he, the dressing room was one of the bathrooms. It was like ridiculous. And so he comes back and he goes, Betty, he said, we had people asking for their money back because you didn't see memory. You can't do that. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And so I put memory back in the show, you know. So anyway, um, I did, it just has been this long process of learning mm. what to, you know, how to talk to people on stage and how to, you know, and then, oh, then, Alan Pepper at the bottom line mm. was fantastic. He booked me there and he became like this wonderful friend and patron. And he would book. And then by then I started forming my own band. And um, is I that had, when you started working with Kenny Werner? Yeah, Kenny and Jamie Haddad and Tony Marino. And I still work with Tony and Billy Drews. That was my band. And I found them, um, actually, I was looking for new musicians because I've been working with this pianist named Keith Herman, who we developed this whole memory version because he was my rehearsal pianist in Cats. Oh. And we were together in a room for like four hours every afternoon working on one song, you know. And so we had this version we called Space Memory. Mm. We just took it apart. We did it as a country western song. We did it as a jazz piece we did it as a rock and roll piece we did it in every conceivable fashion to just break it up because I was like you know what are we going to do with this and it was through that process that I found my interpretation of it um which you know was that whole thing but we came up with this array I just one day there was this map on the wall and it was like a map of the stage and then where the orchestra was behind the stage you know behind the set behind the tire uh, the, I mean, the Bikabu, you know, it was in, in this room, the pit singers and the orchestra were back there. Yeah. And we only saw them on video, right? And so, and they only heard us on speakers, right? So, so I was like, Keith, you're going to be back here and I'm going to be over here. I had this pointer stick with the map that Trevor used. And I said, so I want you and I to be like, <laughs> think. And, and he said, okay. And so then I went in one day and I said, okay, Keith, just start playing what you like. Just take the chords and just play what you like. And so he did this improvisational version and I, it, it really inspired me to sing it in a way that was like so connected and whatever. And so we developed this thing and we repeated it. And I said, this is called space memory. And I'm like, I'm sure if Andrew hears this, he's going to love it. <laughs> the whole thing. So I went to Trevor. And this is a kind of naivete, right? Silliness. And I said, Trevor, we have this new arrangement of memory you have to hear. And he's like, <laughs> so he makes an appointment with us two days hence to come in and hear space memory. And we were so nervous because he was clearly, you know, like, what is this? And we didn't know each other very well and stuff, you know, but it was like, so we did it, but we did a kind of faltering version of it. And he goes, 
right now do it exactly the way Andrew wrote it. And I was like, okay. And so fortunately he protected us from Andrew ever hearing space memory. So, so, but the thing was that our improvisational version had really informed and it was filled with these beautiful, you know, spacious chords and stuff that I still use in my, uh, and then my friend, Michel Columbier was this brilliant French composer that orchestrated my first concert after at Carnegie Hall. Uh, used some of our spacey things. Well, then Keith was is a composer, and uh, he didn't really want to be my pianist. So I ran into um, who was it? I ran into on the streets. I think it was David Sanborn. No, was it? Could it be? Yeah, I think it was. And I I just said I'm looking for a new band, and he he gave me Jamie's name, the percussionist. And he said Jamie will know who the guys are. Call him. So. Jamie gave me two pianists named uh, Bill Mays and Kenny. And I called them both and Kenny returned my call and um, made an appointment with me right away, came over and he played in my apartment in New York and it made me cry. And I was like, great, you want to be my piano player? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, you're my MD, you're my piano player. So then we start collaborating to create these collections of music for the bottom line. And then Alan Pepper uh, kept booking us there. So we kept doing new collections, new collections. And we were doing really innovative jazz versions of, because they were brilliant jazz musicians. And Kenny would say, you know, nobody's ever going to understand this. They're not, you know, because the, the Broadway purists were like, oh, you know, what is she doing? Now everybody does it, but I nobody really had at that point. Yeah. And um, so this record company, a guy named Mort Drosnes, that had worked at Columbia, he was starting his own label called Sterling Records. So mm. and he started, he wanted to record us. So we did five albums for him and Alan would book us there a couple of times a year. And then that just kept generating new collections of music, new collections of music. And then that's how that happened. And I worked with that group of musicians for 20 years and we did like a lot of CDs. Yeah. Yeah, you've been so prolific and they all have so much of their own character and yours and such great songs. And we've done 18 CDs. So incredible. You know, that I've done 18 CDs and the, that group, I, I don't know, we did a bunch. And then I met Christian because Kenny was less and less available because mm-hmm. he was doing his own thing. And Christian would come in and work with me. And then uh, we reached a point, Kenny and I, where we decided to let the relationship go. It'd been, you know, 20 years. And uh, I asked Christian, well, I found Christian listening to the, the albums of the Tierney Sutton band, which mm. was a brilliant jazz singer. Yeah. Christian is one of the founding members of that band with Tierney and that group. Mm. of And they're incredible musicians. So I called the musicians union in LA to get his number. And I called him and I said, do you ever work with other girl singers? Yeah. Um, and it's been interesting because most of the time he's available for stuff. It's like been, there's been very rarely that there's been a conflict. And I found Terry Davis, my sound man at the bottom line, and he's worked with me ever since then. Um, so since 1998, seven or something like that. So that's a long time. That and venue then, is such a loss. I'm so happy that now you're playing Joe's Pub too. Yeah, I love Joe's Pub. It has the same feel. But I called Alan after I saw this Bravo special. Or I mm. wrote him an email to thank him for for his patronage because he literally made me and my band available by booking us there 
consistently and was very loyal to me in that time period and the, the quality of the musicianship that we were bringing. And then when Rossness recorded those five albums, suddenly reviewers that had reviewed us just the concert got what we were doing when they could listen to the album. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got started and Kenny had already said, you know, they're never going to understand this until they can sit down and really listen mm-hmm. to basically when I first started working with Kenny, we co-arranged everything. And I would say, okay, here's a book of, you know, I would chime this. And I had books of paintings, you know, like by great master painters, like realists, um, impressionist, um, surrealist painters. And I would say, okay, the scenario of this is, um, you know, the singer is this character. She's telling this story, but the environment is this. And I want washes of sound that are like this color. And I would show him the painting. Like I remember we did a painting based, an arrangement of the very thought of you that um, is a beautiful standard. And I based it on Monet's The Lilies, you know? Mm, Yeah. And and so I said, I want washes of color that are like this. And I want it very impressionistic. And um, that's the arrangement we created. And then I used that as an introduction at a concert we did in at the University of Las Vegas. And uh, Steve Wynn was in the audience. Wow. He was like, and he comes backstage and he goes, I have that painting. I want to show it to you. And so he uh, invited me to see, to go see this performance of O. And so he held the curtain so we could get to see O after our concert. And then he took us to uh, his gallery at, mm-hmm. in uh, the Bellagio Hotel and showed us the painting that I based the arrangement Amazing. on. How cool was that? Wow. <laughs> huh? cool. Yeah. He should have given it to you. He <laughs> <laughs> the curtain. That was really cool so we could get there. I felt all posh about that. Yes. Well, you are. I mean, you know, Betty, I have to say, like, I, I'm – for someone on the outside of your career who's just been such a fan just, you know, for my whole life and just, you know, treasured your albums so much. I mean, they've been such touchstones for me, you know, and it just, I think that anyone would think of you as just an unquestionable, just star of the American stage. I I hope that you have at least at this point, that sense of, of the, you know, having arrived. Oh, yeah. I mean, I tell my students, you know, talent used to be a word for money, like so many talents. Mm. It was a rate of exchange. Uh-huh. So basically, my theory is that if you have a talent, you're, you come into the world with that particular talent as a means of exchange. But it's your job to take responsibility for the talent and make it grow and polish it. Like I, you know, I think of becoming an, a finer and finer actor is really equated with becoming a finer and finer, a better and better human being. Mm. So it's like, it's almost like the notion of, you know, Michelangelo with the marble and it's like, how do you do that? And he says, I just rub away everything that doesn't belong. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing in terms of becoming a storyteller and actor. You just keep rubbing away everything that doesn't belong until you know, your the the essence of your being can shine through, basically, and um, 
So, yeah. So, and I'm like, it's a, having a talent is a responsibility and, um, and I mean, it's a gift and a responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I had this mother who, because I'm fundamentally, I think a very retiring person, you know, I'm, I'm pretty like, I'm a couch potato. I like to have a good cup of coffee and hang out, watch good movies and read good books and talk to friends. You know, it's like, yeah. And so to like get me up to do something, usually and I'm trying to work on that instead of waiting to be hired, you know, um, to generate creativity, which is why I'm grateful for the musicians that I work with and stuff and the, the places that want to, that are loyal to our concert bookings, like now, like the bottom line used to be in now Joe's pub. You know, I'm supposed to be doing Joe's pub in November for eight performances. So we've got to generate some new stuff for that. Um, I'm really grateful for my collaborators and I'm super grateful um, for the people that have opened doors for me or kind of kicked me in the ass along the way, like Elaine or Charlie Blackwell, the stage manager who facilitated me getting that second audition for Promises, Promises. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you know that story, but. Um, yeah, I think it's in the, it's in the yeah. rock. It's so good. Yeah. yeah. It's like those people, you know, and Roger Hess and, um, on and on acts of kindness, you know, and my teachers and my therapists are everything, you know? Um, yeah, it's just, I would, I would be not anywhere without all of that. But then you, you pay it forward. I mean, you know, I, I love seeing all the, um, well, when you were first singing Stars in the Moon, Jason Robert Brown was an up-and-coming new composer. Now he's also a Broadway legend. But, you know, Joe Iconis. And, um, you know, if there's a constant sense of renewal and reinvestment and, you know, re-upping that I see with you. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I think it's important. I think it's important to really, you know, I think I've really learned in playing Dolly Levi this past year that joy is a choice. You know, I think I was under the, a bit of an illusion before that, that you, you know, joy was a byproduct of either the job or the relationship or, Mm. you know, like getting a great job and achieving some kind of excellence in that, you know, and uh, you know, it's a byproduct of something Mm -hmm. for some reason. I thought that I guess I wasn't even conscious that I thought it, but it became very clear to me in this, past year of the opportunity and the blessing to get to play Dolly Levi, that joy is a choice Mm. and it's hard. It's hard because to do that show eight times a week for a year, for 13 months, you know, on the road across America, it was like at my age, you know, 71, then turned 72 was unbelievably difficult, but fantastic you know, to rise to the occasion of the challenge of that. And I have an incredible physical trainer named Pat Minocchia who has a gym in New York called La Palestra. And he's Is that the a, guy you were doing Pilates with in the Bravo video? Patrick Strong. And he oh. was, amazing. he's a great Pilates teacher. I believe he's still in New York. You were an early adopter, by the way. I think that was, nobody knew what Pilates was in 1998. Back then. So yeah. Minocchia, I'm training with him now uh, online two times a week since the whole shutdown. Down. But I, you know, I call, he's trained me for every big job since Patrick Strong was a part of the whole Sunset Boulevard thing, too. Uh-huh. I trained with Patrick Strong since Cats. And then Patrick started to, uh, he wants to work with just ballerinas and just dancers, I think. So 
um, but Minoki has been with me since back in that same time period and has made me super strong for every one of these big, big Broadway things I've done. So I called him and I said, you know, they want me to do Dolly on the national tour. And he goes, here's your assignment now. And then he kept working with me for the year and I lost 40 pounds. And I was like in incredible shape. I didn't even know that was possible, you know, and then to reclaim my Broadway voice, which I haven't used you know, I, because I've been singing on microphones, you know, yeah. for all this time. So that was a real blessing. But well, yeah. I was so thrilled I got to see you in it, Betty. And the thing that you said just now about joy is a choice. I mean, it's funny because I know you were talking, I think, about you personally making that choice and going on that tour and the rigors and all that. But that's so much what the, sh- I mean, I guess it really is what the show is about. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it was about, what, what I always say when I tell people how wonderful it was to see you in that part was that, and I love that show and I saw all the dollies. And by the way, I, I don't know if I told you this, part two of our first conversation when we had lunch, when I was begging you to write a book mm-hmm. um, and we, you and I had both just seen Bette Midler do Hello, Dolly. Right. And you were just dazzled by it. And I was like, man, nah, you were like, Ben, you're wrong. Yeah. And I listened to you and I went back and I saw it and I was like, this is dazzling, you know? So I loved all all the dollies. But the thing that really stuck out for me about your dolly was that I really felt that she was the protagonist when you played her. I really just saw this human being that I related to, you know, and when, when you would sing the songs and I would have that dazzling diva Betty Buckley feeling, it would almost be like an afterthought because I was really watching you go through this experience and literally choose joy. There was a moment in, uh, before the... Go back and say that again. You just froze. I didn't hear that. Oh, sorry. Um, the, you know, the dazzling diva Betty Buckley thing was there for me and, you know, in the songs and all that. But it was almost an afterthought to this protagonist journey that I was relating to watching this human being, even though I'd seen the show so many times. And the moment that really stuck out, and it's literally what you're saying, choosing joy, was in Before the Parade Passes By. I think you sang the first part and then Cornelius and Irene come through and the world is full of wonderful things. And I, there was this moment, you, it must be the staging, I'm sure they all did it, but the way that you did it where you started, you made the choice to do the choreography. And mm-hmm. I saw you with this, this just very pronounced decision to start doing the footwork and it was like, it was the whole show happened right in that moment. It was so breathtaking and I'll never forget it. Thanks, Ben. Thanks. Choosing joy. Learning yeah, how totally. to play that character, you know, and incorporate my specific skill of kind of a, uh, a I don't even know how to put it into words. Uh, you know, it was, it was confusing to, I mean, cause I felt like I was going to comedy school with Jerry Zachs and Lewis. <laughs> I learned, you know, I've learned, uh, I mean, I played comedy, but not that kind of specifically timed sure. uh, farce. And so the direction was, you know, and so h- how to bring my emotional truth to that was, um, was you know, learning another set of skills. And so because, and it was, uh, you know, it was the first time I've ever done a part where I didn't know my specific purpose as to why I, because I never saw myself cast in that role. Hmm. So it took me some months, um, the, I'd say the first five months of the tour, actually, to really find myself in the role. And um, it wasn't until we did um, 
uh, Costa Mesa. I, I had been sick. I missed a number of performances. And then I came back for the last four, I think, of, of that run. And the, the, the hall was perfect acoustically in Costa Mesa. And I walked out on the stage and, um, and my sound man found me for the first time in the tour. I mean, he, from time to time, found me in these other halls, but it wasn't consistent. And he and I were constantly trying to, because I couldn't always hear. And then I would push too hard. And, you know, it was, it was a problem trying to figure that out. And so suddenly because of the acoustics of the hall, he suddenly had the pocket for me. And so I knew exactly where to sing and I could just stay in my body the way I'd been trained mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. uh, with all my teachers to just stay inside yourself and let the audience come to you. And so I suddenly was able to incorporate everything I knew for the first time instead of the, you know, that thing. Right. Is that making any sense? Or Yeah. I mean, it's just funny because I know I saw you before that in Miami and it was such a fully realized performance in oh, my experience of it. I, I just, I didn't really know for myself uh, what exactly I was there for until that experience. Yeah. And then I suddenly realized it and I was like, Oh, this is familiar. And then, and then I was home free from there. Mm. Um, yeah. It took some time, but like I say, most of the time when I go into a project, I know my purpose in it up front, you know, what was sunset. Um, you know, they flew me to London to audition me and stuff, but they gave me a week to learn all the songs and, I saw the show, not with Patty. I saw it with her understudy because she was on vacation. Mm. I saw it with Patty later. And I saw the show and I knew exactly from that experience what I needed to bring to it, you know, and mm. what, what I was sure was necessary. And they had made these decisions to go in this other direction. Um, and the whole scuttlebutt happened with Glenn and Patty and da, da, da. And fortunately, when I came into rehearsal, I mean, fortunately, I had the support of Pat Strong in that time period too, my trainer to keep my focus on my work, but, and I had this great relationship with my therapist, Arcelia and her counsel through that one helped me get the job through the audition process and not confront anybody with my opinions. Cause she would say, you know, you don't have to tell anybody what you're going to do or what your plan is. You just have to like hear the guy mm-hmm. and let him like you. And then and she would suggest things. She would say, you know, Brit- British people don't want to talk about s- in psychological references because that's all that interests me, really. Is human right. Uh-huh. He said, so let's steer away from that in your conversations with Trevor. And I'm like, okay. So smart. And then she said, you know, let's see if there's some classical references we could bring into this. So I, for the first couple of weeks of rehearsal, I was like just doing what he told me. And then I started to introduce ideas like, uh, you know, Trevor in Greek mythology, Medea, Medusa, um, you know, the when you like hurt the feminine, you know, you're, you're going to suffer that kind of thing. He goes, oh, show me. And then I would be like, okay. And so I would show him a little of what I had in mind. And, and then it, it kind of gradually worked like that. And so he afforded me my own interpretation, which mm-hmm. was really generous of him. And then, um, we came to New York with it and we went through a similar process of him finally trusting my interpretation. And then he came back to the show three months later and he saw the audience's response to it. And he was like, the audience, the audience. And cause I was, I was interpreting it with what I thought was a contemporary consciousness about um, how, you know, women really feel 
not mm. the ideas of making, I don't know. It's, it, I, I don't mean to digress into that whole thing, but um, yeah. Well, it's so fascinating to me. I mean, I only ever saw Glenn in the role in LA and then I saw her now just when they did this revival at the palace, you know, but I've watched the videos of you and Patty and Elaine and Petula and you Helen didn't, Schneider. You didn't see us do it? No, I'm so oh, heartbroken. Oh my God, we have to end this conversation. <laughs> I know, trust me, <laughs> it, it's the regret of my life. It's and, on YouTube, my whole show is on oh, YouTube. Oh, i watched that many, many times, yes. trust. Same. I did. Oh yeah, several, including uh, your closing night, which is spectacular. I mean, Thank you're you. so, the audience is so insane and then you're so visibly moved by it. Um, but it's so funny. It's so interesting to hear you mention classical theater as a reference point, because that's what I thought. I was watching a clip of your final scene and coming down the staircase, it has that Greek tragedy proportion to it. Yeah. And when you say like, this is my life, there is nothing else. It's, it's so enormous. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, you know, I I, we, I don't want to get into comparing divas because I know you don't go in for all that that like shit. You know, like <laughs> but you know, but I think part of the reason that probably they they were so taken with what Glenn was doing, and you know, because it had the size to fill that yeah. house. And I thought you were doing that size, but for real, you know. <laughs> and it's like it's even on this TV, even on this bootleg. You know, it's it's so it's so hard. How do you break through a bootleg video on YouTube? You know, right. that's a that's a that's a lost in translation moment. But I was watching this and you just grabbed me, you know. And I just I I, I really I it's my one of my biggest regrets is not seeing you in sunset. That was so fun. The two years I had on that show was just a freaking blast. Is that the longest you ever did one role? No, I did uh, Pippin. When I was 24, I, you know, when I replaced Jill Clayburgh six months into the run mm. as Catherine. And I did that for two years and eight months. Oh, wow. And, so uh, did, I, is that where you yeah. met Dean Pritchford? <laughs> what? Is that where you met Dean Pritchford? Yeah. Uh-huh. He was my mm. first Pippin because he was the standby for John Rubenstein. So I rehearsed with him and mm. Bob came back and directed me into the show, which mm. was really generous. And did you did he say someday I'm going to write you an amazing part, Betty? To Dean? Yeah. Uh, no, we were we were but really close friends. He, he, in fact, I just was working out in my little um, room where I've got all my gym equipment and stuff, and I have that I've been carrying around with me for a million years, and I look at them like. Why do you keep dragging all these books around? Give them away, give them to a library. But on that shelf was is a dictionary, uh, that uh, a Webster's dictionary, like a beautiful dictionary. And that was Dean's gift to me with his perfect handwriting, you know, as a dedication in the front. And so, and I taught Dean, I taught Dean how to take care of his skin. <laughs> so I was like, I became his like skin mentor about how to mm-hmm. take care of his skin and he has beautiful skin to this day so yeah we're Thanks so really good friends. Friends. i was his date to the oscars when he won for oh for fame flash dance yeah i was his date oh amazing yeah 
He had so many great ones. He was my date too at a bunch of, you know, red carpet things. And he would say, you've got to, you've got to play the room. You've got to like go around the room. And I'm like, no, I don't. He's like, yes, you do. Come on. And he would make <laughs> me people say, hello. <laughs> he's, he's like real good at all that stuff. Yeah. Well, we, we all need that friend, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I could do a hundred, a hundred hours on you, Betty, but I we didn't well, even talk about music. It's like, we didn't even get to that. Well, we, you know, we'll have to have you back and do a proper broken records episode, just about an album. This isn't a proper broken records. This episode. is Corin streams. We're, we're on the Bravo That's profile. A, a quarantine episode. Yeah. You're doing your quarantine episodes. Oh, yeah. So we're talking about the Bravo profile, Betty Buckley. And we have the most special guest in the world we could possibly dream of. And we have to, I don't know if you noticed, Betty, if you've listened to our episodes, but you are our first guest who we actually mention in our theme song. Really? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. We kind of go through our list of leading ladies. I don't recall that. I have listened to a couple. I listened to the whole Linda Eater thing. Yeah, it's just up up top, the, the theme song we have before each episode. We go through a list of all our favorite leading ladies. Oh, we could sing it for her live. How does yeah, it yeah, start? Um, uh, Broken records, the albums you wouldn't shut up about. Broken okay, records, okay. the music our guests can't live without. Like, like Judy, Barbara. No, Liza. I did it wrong. It's like Judy, Barbara, Liza, Bet, Betty, Audra, Bernadette. All right, <laughs> nice. nice list. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so I have one other story for you. Um, yes, please. This is when I decided I wanted to be a concert artist. Mm. I went to see, in my early 20s, I got a standing room ticket at Philharmonic Hall for a Sarah Vaughn concert. Oh. And, you know, I'd studied her albums when I was, in, you know, when I was growing up, besides the Judy Garland album, I studied uh, Sarah Vaughn, um, oh, God, uh, Jesus, uh, Nancy Wilson, mm-hmm. um, Ella Fitzgerald, um, oh God, there's several, and so those I was are good ones. All these a fan of all these brilliant ladies, and um, so I, I got a standing room ticket to it was totally sold out Philharmonic. I'm standing in the back of Philharmonic, and she comes on with her jazz trio that she's worked with for a million years, right? and sings this amazing concert. And she sang this song, um, Everything Must Change, which mm. I love. It's one of my favorite songs. And which you did so brilliantly at Carnegie yeah, Hall. A couple of times. Anyway, I love the song, but because of her. And so um, I remember being so transported by her interpretation and the beauty of it. And then the whole audience is just in that breathless silence. And then they went crazy. And I, I that was the epiphany where I was like, I have to experience this. I have to be a concert artist. I see myself working with, you know, these amazing musicians for years that I've worked with and I'm going to do that. And I don't know how, and I'm not, I don't know how I'm going to find those guys, but I'm going to do that. And I was like 22 at that point. And then years later, my ex-husband introduced me to a brilliant uh, pianist named Keith Jarrett. Do you Mm. know who that is? Keith Jarrett? you've got to listen to him. He's amazing. He's an improvisational pianist and um, a genius beyond. And he has a bunch of albums out. Anyway, my ex-husband, Peter, was one of my, is still one of my best friends. 
uh, called me. We had separated and he had a new apartment on the Upper West Side, just down from where my apartment was. And he said, come over. I, you know, he was also a brilliant cook. He said, I'm going to make dinner and we'll have a bottle of wine. And I want you to listen to this musician. And so he puts this album on and it's four sides of, of a vinyl records, two vinyls called the Bremen Lausanne concert of Keith Jarrett. And it's, it's, I remember the box, it's like navy blue with green. And I love jazz musicians from the time I was a teenager, you know, from working with jazz musicians in Fort Worth and stuff. And then <clears throat> I'd spend all my babysitting money when I found Brazilian music. And then mm. we had a record store in Fort Worth called Record Town that was run by Sumter Bruton, who was my drummer. And his son was Stephen Bruton, who was this brilliant guitarist that I worked with years later. And we, we were friends in high school. And um, he uh, it was adorable. This whole family was great. And they still have the Record Town uh, record store at the TCU campus now. So anyway, that exposed me to world music, like musicianship from all around the world. So I love jazz musicians and I love Brazilian music and all these great influences in the music that I loved. And so <clears throat> I had all these records by these great jazz instrumentalists and I loved them as much as I loved Broadway and Broadway storytelling and, and great lady singers. And so Peter had me sit down and he said, cause he, you know, I talk a lot, he was like, don't say a word. We're going to listen to this whole album. And we were drinking this great bottle of red wine and stuff. This is after dinner. And I didn't say a word. And he played all four sides of this record. And it just transported me to this other way. You have to study this guy. He's amazing. Anyway, that changed my life. So I became this like Keith Jarrett devotee. And whenever I sometimes like I've flown to L.A., to see him play at Disney Hall. But I'm like one of these ardent, passionate fans. And the last time I saw him at Carnegie Hall, um, I went backstage and I'm in the line and I'm standing uh, behind, um, oh, that great piano player, hmm. pop singer. Oh, I can't remember his name right now. Anyway, I'm like all lined up with all these other people that are there to adore Keith Jarrett. And so his wife at that point, he's divorced now, but his wife, he'd been uh, ill and she had nursed him through this thing. And so I was like, oh, thank you so much for taking care of Keith. Oh, Betty, we know who you are. He was, mm -hmm. she was really nice. And I was like, Keith, you know, and he's like, mm -hmm. very cold, right? And so, I've, you know, I've seen him outside of other stage doors. And I'm like, Mr. Chair, it's Betty Buckley. <laughs> like, I love you so much. And he's like, mm-hmm. And so finally, you know, I flew to see him at uh, Disney Hall not so long ago. And um, I, I went through the line again. I did the whole thing. And for the first time, he goes, hi, Betty. And I was like, oh. I was like oh. the fangirl made it. <laughs> I guarantee anytime you can see him in concert, he will take you to a place that you didn't know existed in yourself. And it's definitely a trip. It's like being... Uh, like unbelievably high it's like mm. unbelievable it's so beautiful mm. and it, it'll take you to this transcendent awareness where you start answering questions about yourself i've had visions in every keith jarrett concert anyway at one of his concerts i went to see him at alice tully hall and it was actually a classical concert he's playing piano with a classical uh with an orchestra classical music and i had this vision of exactly my band and exactly what i looked like 
and I came on stage in my vision and I knew the music that I was going to do. I didn't know what it was. I just knew how it was going to make people feel. And then after that, I, I, I ran into David Sanborn on the street and he gave me Jamie's number and, and I told you all that. And then I found my band right after that. So I believe in spirit and I believe in soul and I believe in the specificity of the guidance that can take you to the next thing. Mm. And well, we just have we have to be aware of the messages and we have to be aware of the signs and that's all. Well, and I hope you're getting a guide telling you to write a book. <laughs> well, well, Betty, thank you so much for doing this. We love you. Love and you, uh, just, you. it's such a treat to talk to you. And thank you. Thank you. It was really fun talking to you guys. Thanks for listening to Ben Rimmelauer's Broken Records on Broadway World. For more episodes, visit Broadway World, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts do be. <laughs> Come back next week for our Quarren Stream of Sondheim, a celebration at Carnegie Hall, an all-star event for the ages featuring Betty Buckley, Bernadette Peters, Patti Lupone, Liza Minnelli, Dorothy Loudon, and Glenn Close. Find them on YouTube via our Broken Records Quarren Streams playlist as uploaded under the veiled title, Musical Theater Master Serenaded by the Greats in 1992. What queen came up with that? This one! It's on my YouTube channel. And be sure to check out our new twice-weekly live stream video chat, Tuesday, Thursday, April, August. Available on the Broadway World Facebook page and the Broadway Podcast Network YouTube channel, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 10.30 a.m. This episode was edited by me, Daniel Nolan. Thanks to Emmy-winning composer and lyricist Lance Horn for the Broken Records theme song. Follow us both, Ben Rimmelauer and Daniel Nolan, on all y'all's socials. That's Ben Rimmelauer. B-E-N-R-I-M-A-L-O-W-E-R. And that's Nolan with an E, not Nolan with an A. It's Nolan with an A, isn't it? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.